Welcome back to Imago Gay, a podcast dedicated to the value of Imago Day because we all deserve a life of equality and dignity. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenault, and this week's episode is a recording from a recent seminar with spiritual care provider Roxanne Del Valle and myself, so I apologize about the sound quality, as we talk about spiritual care in the midst of a mental health crisis. As one of our listeners asked, how do you continue to care for your mental and spiritual health when you're doubting your faith? What happens when your deconstruction journey takes you down the road of isolation and you're looking for ways to find connection with self community, and God once again. Roxanne Delvay is our guest today, and she is a spiritual care provider. And she currently is working at Massachusetts General Hospital as an SCP. They've changed their name from chaplains to spiritual care because it encompasses a larger framework for the people that they care for. Sometimes chaplains is very denominationally focused, I guess. But I think it's really important to take a look at how mental health is approached in the hospital setting and how the integration of spiritual care happens. Because I think most of us who have been going to church most of our life, we're used to how pastors might address it, right? We're used to having mental health framed in the context of maybe cosmic battles and I think that kind of is a deficit in the churches, right? There's not a lot of accountability when it comes to having to answer to mental health practitioners and and seeing how theology plays in with all of that. As someone who has dealt with my own mental health at different periods of my life, I think that it's so important that we talk about this to destigmatize it, to get the help that we need when we need it, and also to come away with a lot more compassionate approach to how we view ourselves rather than thinking we're in a spiritual battle that we're losing. And so we have to pray more or read our Bible more. Maybe there are other ways that we can approach how we think about our spiritual health. So at this time, I'm going to hand this over to Roxanne Delvaya, where she's going to open up with just a little bit about what is spiritual care. And it's a different parameter than how pastors approach it. And I think for, for me, it's been really helpful and really healthy to know that there's another framework and a framework that also encompasses accountability to a larger community about how you provide spiritual care in a way that doesn't cause more harm. So if you need any help getting your presentation up, let me know. Thank you, Kendra, for the introduction. I think keeping Seth at the forefront of this conversation, both in heart and in mind, and sending a lot of love to his family, his community. I see that Haven knew him very well at Andrews. I'm sure that many people are impacted by his loss. And so we want to be mindful of him as we talk about this and be mindful of all queer lives who are struggling to reconcile their relationship to God and their identity and their community. I think it's a very arduous journey. And in some ways, I find myself on it. So not at the other side of the rainbow quite yet, but just on that journey and really appreciating the community. So like you mentioned, I'm going to start by talking about what is it that spiritual care providers do. And I'm just going to talk from my experience. What is it that I do at MGH? So I'm going to share my screen and pull from some slides that I've kind of compiled together. 
from different presentations that I've done. So mental health and spirituality within the healthcare setting. One of the things we like to consider and start with is talking about culture and what is culture, at least what does culture encompass? And as you can see with the little diagram on the right, religion, family and race and gender identity all fall within what we consider culture because it's really the world that any one person inhabits and how they understand themselves impacts their actions. So this is something I like to consider as we talk about spirituality, because a lot of people like to correlate spirituality with maybe a particular belief system or a religious identity. But I think that spirituality is a much bigger umbrella and that culture and religion are often aspects of each other and have a real connection to each other. And so I wanna keep that in the back of our minds as we also talk about spirituality, what spirituality is, or at least how we define what spiritual distress is. We go off the applying nursing process definition, which states that it is a state of suffering related to the impaired ability to experience meaning in life through connections with self, others, the world, or a superior being. And so this band diagram shows that when somebody is in disconnection to the sacred or in disconnection to others or in disconnection to self, they are compromising an experience of meaning making and purpose and therefore jeopardizing their ability to cope. And so the inverse of this or to think about what spirituality would be then is the integration of all these aspects where one is in feeling of in connection to self, others, and the sacred, and therefore can experience a sense of meaning and purpose, and is able to work through life's obstacles with a better or an enhanced coping. So I share this image or these images to say that spirituality can also look like this. It's that time where the artist is feeling their passion and doing exactly what they love and having that version of themselves and the exterior match that version of themselves in the interior or the way that they would want to see. It's that moment where you're surfing the waves and you feel really connected to your buddies or to nature or where a family is going out on an outing and spending time outside and laughing with each other, feeling a real sense of connection within their community or something higher, something bigger than themselves. And I think that's really important because I've talked to, for example, if I use the image on the left, this surfer, when I talk to somebody who experiences mother nature as their higher power, these moments where they're out there on the waves have very much this, uh, were very similar feel to what I would say a Christian describes feeling God when they're out in nature as well or reading scripture. So these are just different practices to normalize that spirituality looks and feels different than some of the associations we make. And at least at the hospital, we're consulted when not only when somebody needs last rites or there's been a real spiritual crisis, but, but also when they're asking, why me? Why is this happening to me? Or when a nurse feels like a patient is struggling to find meaning in their illness or whatever it is that they're going through, 
We're also consulted when a patient is suddenly refusing care or not acting like themselves, or when somebody received a new diagnosis and it's shocking and there might be a new conversation around goals of care. We're consulted for when there's trauma, crises, loss, and grief, of course, when somebody needs emotional support, or is feeling disconnected. And of course, there's all those religious rituals and ceremonies. We're also consulted for those. Many people don't know this, but we're actually consulted when the team is feeling moral distress or when there's an ethically complex case or when they're just exhausted and they just need support. So my role, while I think there's a very big pastoral element to it, is also something different than what you might see in a church setting or what you might expect a pastor to do in a church setting. And we'll get into that. But I wanted to really talk about the importance of these two elements of culture and spirituality in a patient's view of illness by discussing this one case where I had a Hispanic female in her 40s and 50s that was in a room and blasting Christian music. She was evangelical and the team labeled her as very religious. And one of the things that was happening is that she was refusing dialysis. When she arrived to the ED, because of her medical state, they, she was actually forced dialysis treatment. And this was very traumatic to her. And then in conversations that it, it turned out that it triggered some past trauma where she had been forced to do other things. So here we are, she's refusing treatment. She's refusing dialysis. She's very upset. She has, she doesn't consider anybody on the team an ally. She's declining any interpreter services. So there's a language barrier there. And she's threatening the team that if they don't let her go back home, she's threatening to end her life. And she says weird things about the year 2022. And so I'm called into the room and basically told we want her to have support. And we know that religion is very meaningful to her. And she has nobody right now. So I want to keep this case kind of in the background also of our conversation today, because I'm going to be talking about the intersection of this cultural element, this spiritual element, and her medical care. I'm given the idea that maybe she might be a little delusional or psychotic, and that not everything that she's saying is making sense. She's going to be evaluated by psych. So there are, there are these three factors that are playing a role, and I walk in to meet her but I'll leave you in suspense for a little bit and I'll close the loop once I finish talking about what it is that I do in a room when I'm with a patient who is suspected to have psychosis or does, right? Like what am I to do in a room or what are the kinds of interventions? What does my pastoral care as a spiritual care provider look like in cases like this? So I'm going to share this little like cheat sheet of the pastoral care stool which basically means that we affirm, we clarify, and we challenge. These are the three things mainly that we do. But I will say that it's always important for a patient or a client to feel heard, understood, and accepted. But the main goal for every visit is to sit in the pit 
as a chaplain, we're trained to draw on psychosocial theories and concepts to understand our own muck. And these are just a few that I just draw on very frequently, internal family systems, attachment theory, system center theory, stages of development, Cartman drama triangle, relational culture. These are, these are theories that I use to make sense of what's going on from a psychosocial standpoint and to make sure that there is no transference or counter-transference from my story to theirs or that I'm not holding a specific role for them and that I'm drawing appropriate boundaries. But the goal really is to use these theories to sit in a pit because unlike a therapist, I'm not gonna dive into somebody's past and unravel their trauma and provide therapeutic support in that sense. And unlike a pastor, I'm not gonna be pointing out to the future where we have a hope in Christ and everything's gonna be better. I'm going to be fixated on staying in the present. And I will tell you, it is very difficult to not try to make somebody feel better when they're feeling terrible. And it's very difficult to focus and gear the conversation consistently to the heart of the matter as it relates to their hospitalization. But that's what we're there to do. We're, we're not there to just have casual conversation. We're not there to, to dissect their past or, or superimpose a theology. We're there to sit with people and their suffering and be community with them. And from a professional standpoint, facilitate a connection to self, facilitate a connection to others and facilitate a connection to the sacred, whatever it is. So I'm there really to foster a space where connection can happen because as I see it, and as we talked earlier, spirituality really is about a sense of connection. And whenever we can achieve that, then we can enhance somebody's ability to cope with their reality. So the reason why the goal is always empathy is, and not sympathy is because we can only really do this in a meaningful way when we're drawing from our own stories, when we're drawing from our own reference to sadness, from our own reference to anger, from our own reference to suffering and pain and fear to provide language and space that is genuinely helpful and that genuinely fosters a real sense of connection. But like I said, with cases involving mental illness, there are very specific interventions and we use the self-worth dynamic interventions for these types of cases. But one of the things that we're always doing is inviting the patient into a shared reality, right? We're validating their experience, not the content of what they're saying, but the fact that they feel a certain way, right? We're validating the individual and take interest in their story. So who they are as a person, whatever it is that they're sharing, that's one thing. But we are always validating the value of the being and the things that make them them and who they are uh, outside and within their illness. And we recognize that the implicational mind is always embedded in relationships. So therefore, and the implicational mind is basically just the emotional mind is embedded in relationship. So because this is not compromised when somebody's experiencing mental illness, it gives us hope that there's still an ability to connect and to foster relationship, which ultimately is the goal of spiritual care. And then we provide interventions that aim to establish a sense of community. So 
I always say, follow the patient's lead. If they're talking about their senses, stick to not the content of it. So I had a patient who was always talking about um, seeing giant bees and that giant bees were in the room. And he would always ask me, do you see giant bees? <laughs> so I may not talk about the fact that there's a giant bee in the room because that would be to validate a reality that's not our shared reality. But I may talk about how scary it is to see things that are giant like that and and how awful that must be for him. And whenever possible, I do truth tell. I do say, no, I don't see giant bees in this room. I also stick to the emotional side. So I again, not focusing on the content of what they're sharing, but really validating the emotions associated to that content. So sadness that some person died and showed up in their room. Well, I may not validate that that person is in the room with us at that very moment, but I do validate the grief that is surfacing and manifesting itself in really pronounced and intrusive ways. And again, whenever there is a moment of clarity and the person is really interacting with me, the present here and now, then I follow that and we talk about who he is or who they are or who she is as a person and the experience that we're having in that very moment. So I don't superimpose my agenda. I really am very gentle. And what I'm trying to do is just create a sense of community. I'll also share that when a person's in the midst of an emotional or mental crisis, it's not the time for me to enter into my toolbox and use all of my resources, but I would for somebody who is at the height of their mental and spiritual well-being. Sometimes I'm left down to the basics, and that's true for any provider in the healthcare setting, any provider in the acuity or in the acute mental facility shared that experience with me that, well, I don't have as much access to my toolbox. I'm really limited to what I can do. And for somebody experiencing an acute episode, really creating a sense of community is the most basic thing that you can do. And it's also the most helpful thing that you can do. This is important to talk about in terms of my role. I will say that while patients often feel very comfortable to share about their trauma and about everything that's going on in their life. I will always gear the conversation to talk about the heart of the matter as it relates to their current admission or diagnosis. Okay, meaning people have friends and families, pastors and therapists to really dissect events in their life and, and what they're going through. But how I'm best an asset to somebody is to really understand how their spirituality is playing a factor in how they're interpreting either their illness or their hospitalization. If it's not related to one of those experiences, it really does feel like it's outside of my scope and outside of the realm of what that professional conversation, that clinical conversation needs to be about. So even though conversations with trained spiritual care providers might seem very casual, I think the thread is that it will always be geared to some someone's spirituality as it relates to their admission or their hospitalization, or their hospitalization or their illness. 
So let's go back to that first case that I brought up earlier. I won't leave you hanging. What, and this is an actual case. So we have the interdisciplinary team gets together and the psych team determines that the patient's unable to understand the consequences of refusing dialysis. So maybe there's some psychotic element there or at least compromised mental ability there. The nurses are frustrated due to capacity issues and threat that the patient will traumatize neighbor by dying unexpectedly. The physician is worried that the patient might traumatize her own children if we send her home and she dies unexpectedly. The social worker worries that the patient has zero support at the hospital and notes that spirituality is very significant to her, so she places a consult. And then there's the ethics committee in our hospital. It's known as the Optimate Care, Care Committee, which attempts to persuade the patient to take the diocese, but to no avail. So in my conversations with this patient, actually, I'll go back because I don't want to spoil it. But in my conversations with this patient, I, I actually had to pause for a minute because I realized that I walked in expecting this person to sound delusional or psychotic or really out of touch with reality. But when I came into the room and I spoke to her, I really felt like there was a lot of consistency in what she was saying. And I found myself really acknowledging how, yes, it is traumatizing to be forced to a table held down and given dialysis against your will. And as she began to share about her past and how this event triggered that same memory. And so I was able to clarify with her, are you saying that the reason you don't want to receive dialysis and the reason you don't want to receive care at this moment is because it feels intrusive and, and you don't like that feeling. And she opened up and she's, she acted disgusted in her body. And she, she described how dialysis is a very worn cessation and the body makes her feel really uncomfortable. And so I was able to talk to the team and the team normalized, yes, that's a common experience patients have. And, and so as the social worker, the physician, the nurses, the psych team, and I, we all got together and started to talk about this patient, we gained a more compassionate picture. And, and, I'll, and I'll just share that at face value, what seemed like a psych, psychosis kind of diagnosis really turned out to be more of a trauma response when we, with compassion and curiosity, explore the situation. So patient wants to die, she threatened to cut herself, was not so much that she was suicidal. It was that the patient's spirituality fostered such a positive connotation around death and framed it as an encounter with God that to die wasn't a bad thing for her. She believed that 2022 is the end, or that was the at face value what was being said, turned into, oh, Revelation 22 is a metaphor for how in the last chapter, those who are saved will go to God and those who are not in his ways will not be with those who are redeemed in him. And so it became less about, oh, she's having some delusions about the year 2022 to, oh, there's a very tangible story. Uh, or, or chapter in scripture that speaks to how the end of her life is an exciting time for her because it means she gets to see God face to face. 
speaking nonsense became she speaks in tongue. There was a cultural and religious side to that. Doesn't grasp consequences became the reality of death for her was more bearable than the place of her trauma, the hospital and the providers being a traumatic space for her. And this attempt to end her life really became more about her manipulating the situation in her favor. So her following through with her threat really was just a way of her getting her own agenda to go home. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be mindful. I know that we're short on time and it's hard to be really encompassing of everything that spiritual care does, but I'm happy to talk about this case and address any questions around it. I think what I really appreciate about spiritual care and kind of the approach, I mean, you work in the psych unit, you have seen the way that religious trauma plays out for a lot of people. You've met a lot of Adventists, even at your hospital in the psych unit, even. And so it's something that our community is dealing with when it comes to like mental health. And maybe this isn't something that would necessarily land me in the psych unit, but these are some questions that I think come from what I would consider religious trauma. And I think a lot of us here in the LGBTQ community maybe have questioned or asked these things at some point in time. So for example, say I'm coming to you and I am saying that I'm afraid because now that I am out and proud and with a partner that the bad things that are happening to me is God's punishment. And I am questioning now whether or not coming out was the right choice. And I am afraid that God is now punishing me. How would you approach somebody who is like feeling very, having a very punitive relationship with God and questioning even their own orientation and their life circumstances as God punishing them or that the devil has now taken foothold of their life. Things that we pretty normalized in church that the reason we go to church is to keep the devil away and to keep things going good in our life and to not allow an opportunity for the devil to come in and destroy the beautiful things that we have built. So I'm now going through a period of time where things have been destroyed and I'm questioning whether or not I should, coming out was the right choice. What, what are some of the interventions that you would start with me? So definitely some spiritual distress, right? A highly compromised relationship to self because of the shame and the guilt, right? Is this something that's compromising also my ability to go to heaven and feel connected to God? And if the religious community is the biggest factor, so at all angles, you're experiencing some spiritual distress. I will clarify that I have no intention of being your savior in this moment. So I have no intention of, 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 well, you have to see it this way. So I'm not going to be telling you, God doesn't hate you. God is not punishing you. I will actually follow a more inductive process because that's something that somebody has to arrive at on their own. That's not something I can superimpose, right? It's not like a child that just needs soothing, right? As we grow older, we need to be able to do for ourselves what our parents did for us as children. So rather than having this external person be like everybody else telling them how to think or how to interpret and coming in from like the standpoint of having an answer, I sit in a pit. 
first and foremost, right? That's really painful. And we begin to talk and dissect the ways this person is feeling disconnected from their community, feeling disconnected from God, feeling disconnected from themselves. And as we begin to talk about that pain and what that pain looks like, I think the contradictions will naturally start to come up. God is this loving figure that has been there and has saved me from this, but also God allowed this to happen. And I don't know because God did this in scripture. I have a parent right now who's telling me that God God is punishing him by killing his three-year-old son. And with every fiber of my being, I have the desire to say, this is not a punishment from God, but this is this person's worldview. And he came up, he came up in a place where he would be harsh with his child. If, 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 if he did the things that he did, he wouldn't forgive himself. So I use that language to maybe explore the ways in which how his upbringing is transferring onto God a a certain type of character. And then he'll come up with biblical justifications. Well, what was the story he came up with? He took David's son because of his sin. And, And so we began to talk about the theology. And I'll engage that, but here's what happens. Sometimes when we're engaging on the high road, on the intellectual sphere, we're not acknowledging the low road, the emotional sphere. And so part of sitting in the pit is saying like, hey, we can have a whole conversation and make meaning out of this. But remember that meaning making comes from a sense of disconnection, a compromise in making, sorry, uh, uh, meaning making or the ability to make meaning comes from a sense of connection or disconnection. So if you're feeling disconnected, your ability to make meaning out of reality and to cope with it is severely compromised. The the language that somebody uses for the same circumstances is very different if they are connected to God, connected to the community and connected to themselves. So what I'm really trying to do is to foster a space where these relationships can, can reconcile again. And I hope and I trust and I have seen that once we begin to create connections in these directions, even if they're if there's small steps towards it and not full jumps like, oh, I was feeling disconnected from God and now I'm feeling connected to God or I was feeling disconnected from my community, but I'm now I'm feeling connected. No. It sometimes just looks like a small ritual that helps somebody feel a little more like themselves, a little more like there's somebody there, a little more like God hasn't abandoned them, then their ability to interpret their reality and to make meaning of it also enhances. And I love watching that process because rather than superimposing on somebody what they they should believe out of their reality, I get to see how after they experience a moment of connection, they have access for themselves a better interpretation of the reality than the one I could have given them. And, and I, I find myself learning more from my patient encounters than teaching them. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. And I, I really appreciate even just the model of like, what is healthy spirituality? It's connection with self, connection with community and connection with something greater than yourself, right? 
I think what happens when some of us are closeted, like we lose connection with ourselves, and we also lose genuine connection with community and also connection with God, right? Like who is not engaging with our actual selves, right? So also I think it has to do with the trauma of what happens. Like, I mean, you're, you're dealing with the patient right now. I don't know if you can go into the details of that, but I mean, what happens when we are ostracized from community or when there is fear of coming out to our church community, to our family, to our friends, that there's going to be a loss of friendship, a loss of church membership, a loss of just participation in community, I think will automatically just send you into spiritual distress. Like it's not, and I guess for me, it's been a much more compassionate way to look at it because it's not this deficiency with you because you're not praying hard enough and you're not doing the work of studying your Bible or you're not being a good spiritual warrior. It's you've literally been cut off from the things that make good for good spirituality, but then you're blamed for it, right? Like that, that the mental distress, the spiritual distress that you're experiencing is your fault because you aren't strong enough rather than saying like, of course, you're experiencing distress because you've lost these different avenues of being able to connect with the community, with self, and with God. You're touching on a very important point around interventions for people struggling with their mental health. I really embody a valuer with these kinds of patients because so much of the stigma is around willpower. Talk about people with addiction, talk about eating disorders, talk about depression and anxiety. The way that we get angry as a society or push these people out, ostracize them, is sending a message that, hey, you should have it together more. Like, if you were to eat better, if you were to exercise more, if you were to pray more, if you were to do all these things, name it, then you wouldn't be in the situation that you are in. When none of the literature suggests that it's a matter of willpower, none of the science suggests that. So you wouldn't look at this from an individual standpoint, right? You will look at, okay, where did this person grow up? What were the resources available to them? Were there functional relationships that fostered healthy habits or did new habits have to develop in order to make that experience livable, survivable? And you start to see that people are not just these free agents in their own little bubble, and they get to determine their genetics and their disposition for something or, or not. They're really conditioned by their environment to, to thrive or to not thrive. And, and I think we have a lot of resistance to viewing people like that. And I'm not talking about victimizing people. I think there's certainly a role for the will. But more often than not, issues of addiction and mental health really require a community and resources to help somebody. It's not a matter of willpower. And I don't think you'll find literature that will back that claim. So I'm going to open up some questions. I will continue to talk on for the next few minutes. But there is a question here, which is basically, I like the phrase, sit in the pit. Do you mean it is important to sit and experience whatever feelings one is having? Like feel the feels? Seems like that would be okay if one has external slash internal support, but could be harmful otherwise. 
Yeah. So sit in the pit means that when I'm with the patient, I'm not really trying to persuade them to feel any different or to interpret life any differently than they're interpreting it. And that's really, really hard to do. That's my supervisor try to try to help me a lot with it because naturally we're very uncomfortable with sitting in the muck with sitting with situations that are not fixable because we like to be able to fix them by that I don't mean that I don't provide any reframing right I think sometimes the patient is talk telling me this team sucks I I don't like my nurse and they're saying a bunch of negative things and my reflection might be oh, it sounds like you really value attention. And I'll do a reframe so it's not like I'm painting the patient as a very aggressive and and having an interpersonal dynamic with the nurse. But I'm really focusing on what is it that they're trying to communicate and making sure that I see them. So even if I provide a reframe or I reflect back in a way that doesn't necessarily affirm the content of what they're saying, I am validating that that's their experience and this is what they're valuing and this is what they need and they're not getting that in that moment and that that sucks. And so I I draw from my own life. Where when and where have I experienced feeling like I'm not getting attention? When have I felt like a lesser person or like I'm not getting the same kind of treatment that this person is getting? And what did that feel like for me? And rather than try to change how that person is feeling, I'll say, well, that felt like, like this. And, and, I, and, and it made me want to fight for more attention. It made me angry and it made me want to yell. And so then I'll draw from that, from my own experience to offer language and ask, does that resonate or does that not resonate? Or can you say more? And so often having that person share with me feels therapeutic because somebody got to bear witness to what they felt without trying to change it. And that's not something that many people can offer. Friends might not be comfortable and often are not trained listeners, right? So cannot stay in the pit for 30 minutes. I know I struggle to be the sit in the pit person because I think negative feelings are so hard to have, right? And to relate to someone who's going through a negative time and to have to access a painful time in your past, it's like, man, how do I sit here with this person when I just want to, I just want to move on with my life. Right. But I can say, like, I think there's nothing that I hate more (laughs) than when I am going through something and I just want to be related to, like, I don't want, I don't want the bow. I don't want the silver lining. I don't want it. It's going to get better. Or like, let's come up with some solutions. Like I, I, I think I, I feel disconnected or even Sometimes I feel crazy to, to feel that how I'm feeling if it's so unrelatable to somebody else, right? So just being able to connect with someone who says, I know how you're feeling. Like there's some things you can't access, right? Like if somebody has lost a child and that's not your experience, right? You, you can't connect with that grief, but have you lost something that meant so much to you? And you, you're connecting at the level that is your capacity, right? And that I'm sure has to count for something. Yeah, somebody once told me the difference between textbook chaplaincy and brave or courageous chaplaincy is how you use self. And I think, like you said, you don't want somebody 
to just kind of sideswipe you with a theology or with a feeling that you should be feeling or an interpretation of how you, or even gaslighting you or invalidating you. That's not what we want. There's an actual term called joining in this practice. And it's kind of this art of saying, when have I last felt this way and how can I join? And the assumption is that no feeling, no feeling is bad. Anger is not a bad feeling. I, I struggle so much to validate people who have this conception that anger is bad. I'm here like trying to encourage them to express their anger, that it's safe to express their anger, even towards God, that God is not, we don't have a theology that doesn't allow people to be angry at God. I mean, when we step into the light, when we allow feelings to take their natural course, they will naturally come down. If we stop them, then what we create is tension. And inevitably, when there's something happening in the spirit, and when there's this emotional tension, it has a way of manifesting in very physical ways, headaches, tiredness, dizziness, nausea, like these are things that we, we know and are not like separating the body from the spirit in that kind of way. But when we allow emotions to take their natural course, to send us the messages that they send us, they're done in 60 seconds. What is, what is the lifespan of an emotion? It's not very long. So when we just are seen in that moment, that creates connection. When we feel understood and heard and accepted, that's where we foster connection. Thank you so much for everyone who is participating and putting in these questions. I'm just so glad that you all are engaged. I do want to say one last thing before we chime out. So please put in any last questions if you have them. But I think many of you can relate to this as being a part of this community. When you endure trauma, that there is, sometimes people call it mental injury instead of mental illness, right? Like that something has happened to you and now you are finding a very difficult way to cope with your reality. And sometimes it looks, sometimes I tell myself, I feel like, I feel like I'm going crazy. And I think, especially in the framework of religion and from where I'm coming from, there are some frameworks that I'm like in the process of trying to lose. One of those being, like I said, looking at my mental health as uh, something like a losing battle, right? Like I'm losing the warfare of good and evil. I'm not putting up a good enough fight. And I'm just curious, like as somebody who I think is on the journey and many of us are like, we're on the journey of trying to find healing and how to recuperate from this trauma. Like I just did this podcast with Gretchen Van Ness and they're starting an LGBTQ senior housing center. And in this senior housing, like you're dealing with people who were gay before there was a single law in place that protected them. These are people who are in their eighties and nineties now, right? So they live through a very traumatic time where gay marriage was not legal, where they could lose parental rights if they shared, if they shared a home with a child that one of them adopted. Like there were so many things that they had gone through and now they're on a journey to, to recuperate from the trauma that has happened to them. And sometimes you do feel like you're going crazy. And when you're coming from a religious context, it's easy to have those familiar phrases of like, I don't know, demonic possession or like, or feeling like, is there evil inside of me? How do you deal with those who feel innately evil or they feel as though they've been possessed because they're dealing with 
kind of the effects of a mental trauma. Have you dealt with that? And how do you approach someone like that in the psych unit? Yeah, I've had patients ask me for an exorcism. I've had patients tell me that they feel like the devil is talking to them. And I think my first intervention is towards myself. I grew up in a community that taught me to be really afraid of people who spoke that way or shared those kinds of fears. And I know that believing that somebody is demonically possessed already comes with baggage. And especially if you were taught to be afraid of that, right? Wow, am I talking to a demon right now? Is my soul in danger? Will I walk out of here and now start to see things? Will I? So I think at the early stages, I will say I don't encounter that actually at all now. But in the earlier stages, those were my fears in working in a psych unit. And it was only through my experience of sitting down with these people and realizing there's a human crying out for help here. And theology is the only way they know to give language to what they're experiencing, hallucinations. And I see it for different th traditions and belief systems, it changes. The same person who has a psychosis around demonic possession and religious themes might have that of technology. I hear people talk about the government and is they're listening and there are secret spies and people are there to get them and they're showing up and they're listening to their conversations. And I mean, I think there's, religion is just one of the very many ways. Religion gives language to some of the experiences that people facing hallucinations or delusions or psychosis may be experienced. So I will just put that out there that sometimes the Bible gives us language that people adopt to make sense of their reality. But psychosis is actually a really incredible human tool and ability, if you can think of it in a compassionate way, that people that have experienced traumas or have experienced disassociation have, in another sense, created a reality, a world that is more bearable than the one that traumatized them. So even in that, I'm kind of in awe of God of creating these kind of escapes for the mind. But at the same time, we live in this world and we all have this shared reality. And so how do we help people live in very functional ways? And the thing is that before, and I tell this to my patients, before we can address this spiritual warfare that you're talking about, we need to address your physical well-being. And so the interventions from the therapists and the psychiatrists often provide medications, stable environment. And I will say this just from my experience, it is precisely those people who ask for exorcisms, the ones who no longer want it once they've been stabilized and who don't view the reality the same way. So I think there's a way that we can approach this subject when we've never really encountered these cases and we can mystify and talk about them as hypotheticals. And then there's the persons and the providers who see them on a day-to-day -day basis and start to recognize the patterns and, and see how sometimes the, the very people who are asking for exorcisms are no longer the people that want it once they've been taken care of mentally. And some do, right? Some feel like they need to cover their bases and so we facilitate a connection with their 
clergy or spiritual community so that they can receive that spiritual intervention. But by then, they're not exhibiting the same behaviors and patterns that they were when they're at the acuity of their mental illness. And that's a thing that we need to recognize also is that people can really thrive and live very functional lives with schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, all these things, all the disorders that we also mystify or pathologize are things that I think all humans experience. We just cope some better than others. And last question, and thank you so much, everyone who's participated in this panel so far. Last question is, is very valid. Like, how do you take care of yourself when you are doubting your faith? And I think that's something, especially those who have experienced kind of ostracization from the church and my own journey included has been one of questioning, like, how do I now create meaning, find meaning, find joy, find happiness, find peace, find those kinds of inner solaces. And when I'm in this place of almost crisis of like these really big things that I, big themes in my life of salvation and and faith and hope and the resurrection and the heaven, like all of these things are starting to come into question because of maybe the experience that person has had with the church, how do you begin to take care of yourself in the midst of a crisis like that? When you're doubting your faith. I think that's what we're getting at in terms of like demystifying or or destigmatizing the fact that there are all these other supports outside of religion that are available to us. And we're sometimes afraid that if we reach out for those supports that it must mean that we've lost the spiritual warfare and that therefore we desperately need to fix it in the spiritual realm. But like I talked about, it's that sharing time with friends, sharing time with your colleagues, sharing time with your family. So reconnecting to your community, just spending time on your hobbies or really diving into the things that you're passionate about, but you've been too scared to do really connecting to who you are as a person and allowing yourself to experience yourself as you want to be. It's it's where it begins to happen. If your connection to God or your faith or your religion is requiring you to not be yourself. So if the Venn diagram is like, we reach this kind of harmonious equilibrium and really healthy space when all of these connections are functional. When you're saying your religion is saying, well, it's one or the other. You can't, you either got to sever yourself and be in connection to God or sever God and just be in connection to yourself. Then you're creating a dichotomy that will inevitably rupture the very system, the elements that need to be together and function together to experience your highest sense of meaning and purpose and coping. Um, so For me, what that looked like is I did have a therapist that I talked to. I had people who were of the LGBTQ community that could validate my feelings and my experiences. So I wasn't getting that in the church. I didn't have all my family members supporting me, but I had some family members that loved me. And having connections here and there and being able to say, well, no, I don't want to compromise my relationship to God. So God, I'm not sure how we're going to work this out. But in the meantime, 
I need time to figure this out because I cannot continue to feel connected to you at the cost of my connection to myself. And I cannot completely forget about you. I, I care about you too much. I want to be in relationship to you. And I do have some community, even though it looks very different than the community I really want to have. So I had fragments of these pieces and I said, I'm not going to compromise in any which way. I might have to go through a deconstruction and figure out a way where all these puzzle pieces can come together because some external party is telling me that I can't have all of them. And so I need to find out for myself if that's true or not. And when I tell you that I began to experience God in the least likely places, that feeling that I knew to recognize when I was in scripture or in my devotions or in nature showed up when I least expected it, when I was not in community, when I was not worshiping, I just, when I had asked God to buy me some time so that I could figure out my theology and figure out myself, then I started to say, wait a second, God hasn't abandoned me. And wait a second, I feel the most me I've felt in a long time. And, and little by little, the reconstruction began to happen. But I will say, it did take friends. It did take professionals. It did take me taking care of my health because it was compromised. And I did receive, when I say medical attention, I had gut issues from, I was a nervous wreck. So there were so many factors that contributed to me being able to feel integrity again. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Imago Gay as we continue to build bigger boxes for a bigger God and a more inclusive community. The spiritual health of LGBTQ Christians is often on the fritz, and for no fault of our own, finding connection to community and to self and to God might feel difficult. For those brave souls who have chosen to live in integration with who they are, we love you and we need you to stay alive. Affordable mental health professionals are available to you at betterhelp.com and you can check with your employer to see if you're eligible for Lyra. Sometimes therapy is provided on an income scale by your local therapist, so don't be afraid to inquire with one near you. I've been your host for today, Kendra Arsnow, and you can reach me on Instagram at Kendra Arsnow with an X. Be sure to connect with our sponsors for today, SDA Kinship, because they are creating spaces for LGBTQ Adventists, ex-Adventists, and other faith affiliates to find community. You can also reach our speaker for today, spiritual care provider Roxanne Del Valle at Roxanne Marie. Also, big shout out to our sponsor for this week, Spectre Magazine at spectremagazine.org, because they are making safe spaces for challenging theological dialogue, and they need your support to keep conversations like these going. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly and sponsored by Spectre Magazine and SDA Kinship International.